podcast for June 2019, volume 57, number six. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. And this month, I'm kicking off things, David, by asking you about uh, your editorial on If the Drugs Don't Work. Yes, thank you. So this editorial discusses a recent decision made by the European Medicines Agency to change the license for omega-3 fatty acids. We're familiar with these products being licensed for secondary prevention after myocardial infarction and also for hypertriglyceridemia. But the EMA reviewed the evidence for efficacy for secondary prevention and decided that this was no longer sufficient to support its use. Certainly. I I mean, I can't think of any drugs that have been withdrawn because of efficacy issues apart from evening primrose oil. Was e- that Evening primrose oil. And I think there was one drug that was drotocogin, which was withdrawn quite quickly after its license for lack of efficacy. But overall, no, not many hit the headlines for being having their license amended because of a review of the efficacy, always because of safety. And you yeah. can list hundreds of drugs that may have had their license amended because of safety, but not efficacy. Thank you. And our first main article this month is a review of a new medicine for the management of vulva and vaginal atrophy. So what is the medicine? Yeah, so this is Osperifene, which is a selective oestrogen receptor modulator like raloxifene and uh, tamoxifen. And these drugs selectively bind on to oestrogen receptors in different tissues. In some, they are behaving as agonists and in other tissues they behave as antagonists. So this is actually an oral tablet but is uh, licensed for postmenopausal women with moderate to severe vaginal atrophy who are not candidates for using vaginal estrogen. So we step back a moment and say how currently treatment of choice for this condition? Yes, the treatment of choice for most women is a vaginal estrogen and the feeling about these is that they are very safe to use. They don't have the systemic effects of other systemic estrogen treatments. So there are actually very few women who perhaps won't be candidates for vaginal estrogens. But as I said, the license for this is quite specific. So let's delve into the evidence for the license. So what were the trials for efficacy? So the studies, that, and there were a series of studies, and they looked at four outcomes, of which only one was a clinical outcome, which was dyspareunia or vaginal dryness. The other outcomes were um, something called vaginal maturation index, which is a histological outcome where you look at the balance of squamous epithelium in the vagina. And vaginal pH was another parameter that was used the concept being that if your ph of your vagina rises it's an indication that you're developing vulvovaginal atrophy so those were the outcomes they looked at multiple studies most of them only over 12 weeks and none of them compared treatment with anything other than placebo so of those outcomes only the one of them was really directly related to symptoms and what did they show so the studies showed that, yes, ospemifene is statistically better than placebo at improving symptom um, scores. The difference, though, in symptom scores, so they used a, a four-point uh, scale from naught having no symptoms, four being uh, severe, so sorry, naught to three, 
which is four points, which makes it complicated. And there was a little significant difference between placebo and ospemifine, but we're talking about margins of, of less than one point. So quite, quite mild differences between the two. So scores improved in both groups? Yes. But the overall difference between them was? Was small. And I think somewhere in the article we talk about that a, a clinical difference is regarded as a, as a change of one point. But the difference between the active treatment and placebo didn't reach one point? It was often on a fraction of a point. That's right. So statistically, they, you could demonstrate a, a difference, but actually one wonders whether clinically there was any difference at 12 weeks. So small changes, statistically significant, but, but the actual impact of those, we don't know. You said there were short-term studies largely, so what do we know about long-term safety? So there was a 12-month safety study, which I think demonstrated in the in the population that it was largely safe. There was, I think, perhaps some very mild adverse events. As you might expect, hot flushes were an issue, and there were three cases of endometrial proliferation, which uh, perhaps was a significant issue for sort of the long term. And as a consequence of that, and also as a consequence of the fact that these studies were small and wouldn't have picked up risks of breast cancer or thromboembolic disease, there is some post-authorization safety studies designed into this to look at those in more depth. So bottom line is it's an interesting new development, but... I think, you know, if there are women who, um, whether perhaps because they've had breast cancer or they've had other estrogen-sensitive diseases and are thinking they might want something safer than vaginal estrogen, this might be an option. But we don't, of course, have the long-term studies yet to, to really confirm that. But there may be women who, who feel this is um, better for them. I think the issue for us all is that it's about 10 times more expensive a month than the cheapest vaginal estrogen cream. So it has a, a cost associated with it. It's there. I can't see this being a major player in this area of uh, therapeutics. Okay, thank you very much. And last article this month is a case report. Do you want to talk a little bit about this one? Yeah, so this was uh, a case report of Ekbom's syndrome in a patient, 38-year-old adult, who was taking atomoxetine for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So this was a patient who uh, was diagnosed late with ADHD at 38. She went to a um, specialist clinic, was diagnosed with this, was started on 20 milligrams of atomoxetine, which was increased to 50 milligrams at four weeks. And six weeks into starting her atomoxetine, she began to develop delusional concerns about being infested um, with creatures and despite work both in the house that demonstrated there was no infestation there and uh, clinically um, this delusion persisted and when the atomoxetine was stopped after six weeks there had been a marked improvement. It did however the case report if you like isn't entirely clean in the sense that they did use some olanzapine to reduce her symptoms further so there wasn't an absolute discrete connection between atomoxetine and her delusional um, state perhaps as much as you might like to better really demonstrate that it was a drug-induced issue but it seems to perhaps have been that as the underlying cause for this and again 
interesting because not a lot of this has been reported before. No, and I think the feeling is that a lot of the other drugs used for ADHD, perhaps because they work in the dopamine area, actually are more associated with uh, psychosis. Atomoxetine does, in its SPC, mention psychosis as a very rare side effect, but it's usually considered to be a more uh, safe option, if you like, in that respect than the usual treatments for ADHD. And again, I had a quick look at the MHRA adverse drug reports. And again, there were six cases of delusions reported, but that's out of two and a half thousand adverse events. So again, obviously not not common. No, but I, th- I think it's another example of just how we there's there's always a downside to therapeutics. It's so important. There's always a balance. There's there's no such thing as a safe drug, only safe prescribers. And I think it's really important that we remember that. Thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at ttv.bmj.com.